would, grab your Bibles and turn once again with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For those of you who are new to us this morning, over the past four weeks, we have been here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning to look at what God has to say in his word about spiritual gifts, or what we're calling grace gifts. So far, in this chapter, we've seen the person and power behind these gifts, the Holy Spirit. We've also seen the purpose of these gifts, that they're for, as Paul says, the common good. That is the building up, the edification of the church. And the past two weeks, we've started to look at the list of gifts in verses 8 through 10. Uh, We've looked at utterances of wisdom and knowledge, faith. We've looked at miracles and healing. We still have a couple more to go, but... This week, we're not going to cover those. We're not going to finish this list right now, not because those gifts are unimportant or because I don't want to study them or talk about them, but because Paul says a lot more about them in chapter 14. So we're going to wait a couple weeks before we study those gifts together, and I know it's going to be hard, but hold tight. Prophecy and tongues are coming. Uh, Today, we're going to go and finish off chapter 12. Chapter 12, verses 12 through uh, 31. But before we do, let's go to God in prayer, asking him to meet with us as we study his word this morning. Father, we come to your word as needy and hungry people. Uh, We have felt this week our need for you to speak into our lives. And even as we have spent, maybe it's each morning, afternoon, or evening, time in your word where you have nourished us through your word, we're ready this morning for more. And so God, I pray that you would feed us as your church through your word, that you would speak to hearts that are in need of encouragement, uh, hearts that may be straying, hearts that are rejoicing uh, and just want to continue to rejoice in what you have for us and want to share that with others. And so God, I pray that you would use your word as you promised throughout your word to bring fruit, uh, that it would not return void, that like a two-edged sword, it would pierce our hearts, it would show us where we are not in line with you, and where you correct us, and where you grow our faith in you. And so God, do that this morning for your glory, and do that for our joy in you, and in you alone, in your name. Amen. Well, in Time Magazine's report listing the top 10 unsolved crimes of this century, one rather intriguing account reads like this. Since August of 2007, five human feet have washed ashore near Vancouver, British Columbia. No bodies, no heads, no clothes, just feet. Four left, one right. Nearly all still clad in sneakers. Canadian authorities have yet to determine how the feet ended up there, or why. A number of theories have been tossed around, including the possibility of foul play. You think? (laughs) Others speculate the remains might belong to four unrecovered victims of a 2005 plane crash off Quadra Island. As to why there have been so few leads, a police spokesman told CNN, we suffer from the CSI effect. People think we can do things faster than we can. A Vancouver panhandler told Bloomberg News that he has already 
cracked the case. He said, quote, I'll bet you it was a murder. You just don't find feet lying around. <laughs> Captain Obvious there. Wow. The crime, as Time Magazine fittingly called it, was the case of the disembodied feet. Dun, dun, dun. Well, the truth is, here in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a crime that has actually taken place within the church here in Corinth that is strikingly similar, as we'll see. It's here in verses 12 to 31 that we're given Paul's, you could call it, an investigative report, where he explains to us what happened. So let's listen in to what Paul has to say about this case, what's happening here in the church in Corinth. He says, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body... Though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty which our more presentable parts do not require but God has so composed the body giving greater honor to the part that lacked it that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. You see, what Paul has actually found to have taken place within the church in Corinth is a case of disembodied feet, disembodied ears, disembodied eyes. There's division that has happened within this church, and as he uses this metaphor, I'd like to call this a case of disembodied grace. Unfortunately, that's far too often the case for many believers today within the church. They live in a disembodied state. They either remove themselves from the body of Christ or by not participating in the building up of the church through their use of the spiritual gifts. As a result, they're guilty of treating the body of Christ and tearing it apart limb by limb. Now, thankfully, Paul does not leave this crime unresolved. 
Paul here, in using this metaphor of the body, provides us with some evidence of what has taken place, but also the solution and a way to prevent this from happening in our own church here. And so here, Paul teaches the Corinthian church and us today this truth. The composition and arrangement of the church is a beautiful display of God's saturating grace. The composition and arrangement of the church is a beautiful display of God's saturating grace. And this is exactly what the church in Corinth needed to hear and grasp while they're in this middle of the dispute over which of the spiritual gifts are more important or would give them most popularity. They needed to be reminded that the church has been composed and has been arranged by God just as he chose for a specific purpose, for the display of his glory and his amazing grace. You see, Paul here and throughout the New Testament doesn't define the church like many would today. Paul defines the church as an organism, not just an organization. He defines the church as a living, breathing organism where each member has a specific use and distinct purpose. The church, for Paul and the rest of the New Testament authors, is not a social club where you can come and go as you please, be involved or uninvolved as you like. No, this is the body of Christ. And when the members of this organism, this body, begin to bicker over their status and prominence, or begin to see themselves as unuseful in the body, it's not just a single member who is suffering. The whole body suffers. For as Paul shows us here, body parts are interdependent, not independent. And so too is the church. So this morning, as a church, not only committed to the centrality of the gospel and the authority of the Bible for all life and practice, but also committed to the effective Christ-exalting operation of the spiritual gifts, I believe God would this morning through this passage, first of all, caution us to not diminish his grace by dismissing other members and their gifts. But also he wants to encourage us to delight in his grace, that he has distributed throughout the body through these various grace gifts that each one of us as members have that are purposed, they have the purpose of building up the body of Christ. And so let's begin by looking at some evidence that Paul is giving us here for what I like to say is a diminished grace. Having already made it clear that the Spirit is the one at work in both regeneration and in the giving of gifts, as we've seen in the first 11 verses, we might expect Paul here in verse 12 to move on from those truths. But notice here in verses 12 through 13 that he doesn't move on. In fact, he reiterates that this truth again from another angle. And as he does this, it becomes very evident that the believers in Corinth had a more basic problem than just the misuse of spiritual gifts. They had begun to diminish God's grace at work among them. Notice once again what he says here in verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Before he can move forward to encourage any unity through the use of the gifts, he pauses once again to remind them of the source 
of their unity. Christ and the work of grace in their lives through the Holy Spirit. And now as he, he introduces this body metaphor, we might expect him to immediately make the connection to the church. But look what he does. He says, before he gets to the church, he says, so it is with Christ. I mean, we would expect it to say, so it is with the church. But he says, wait, it's with Christ. And in doing so, he reveals that being a member of the body of Christ is first and foremost about being joined to Christ. Before it's about being joined to one another. Our union with Christ is the bedrock for everything in the church. And so one commentator notes, it is involvement in his personality that supplies the cohesive force to this conglomeration of individuals. And whatever affects any member of the spiritual body actually affects Christ. For he lives his life through the body. Therefore, when a spiritual gift operates through any member of the body, it is a manifestation of Christ's life at work, indwelling the collective body through the person and work of the Holy Spirit. See, Paul's not just going to use this metaphor simply to compare the functions within the body, but to identify our very nature as the body of Christ. As the body of Christ, our very existence results from his work for us, not our work. And so Paul once again explains here the work of the Spirit in regeneration. In verse 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. Now, when we read that word baptize, we might initially think of the baptism with water, but this is not what Paul is talking about here. Here, baptize is better understood to mean to place into or to introduce into. We could translate this then as the late Greek scholar Dr. Kenneth Woost has, has defined it or translated this phrase, by means of the personal agency of one spirit, we were all placed into one body. Paul uses this uh, this word baptize in this sense back in Romans chapter 6. So turn there real quick with me. Romans chapter 6 in verses 3 through 4, he uses this sense of being placed into. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now we know that water baptism is a symbol, is a, repre a representation of what this has done, this being placed into Christ, what has happened to us. The inner reality is pictured in an outward symbol. This is also what Paul refers to in Titus chapter 3, when he says, but when the goodness and Loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is this. Before you can get the use of the Spirit's gifts correct, you have to understand that the same Spirit has taken each and every one of you and has placed you into the body of Christ. 
You have been baptized into one body. In other words, you have been saturated in and by his grace. You have been placed into it and it overwhelms you. And so your union with Christ, therefore, must shape our union with one another. In order for us to have unity with the body, we must have union with Christ. Whether you are a Jew or a Greek, whatever ethnicity, whether you're a slave or you're free, whatever your social status is, your union with Christ makes you one body. So what Paul is revealing to us here is that the church in Corinth was actually diminishing and dismissing God's grace, not just in the misuse of the gifts, but in the very essence and nature of who they were as a church, the body of Christ. In a parallel passage in Romans chapter 12, before laying out a similar list of the grace gifts that we see here in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul identifies that there's the same problem within the church at Rome. So he writes, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Again, we see that God has assigned this measure of faith. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So that though many, we are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then he continues on with the list of gifts. And so, having spelled out the glorious gospel in the first 11 chapters of Romans, Paul, here in Romans, relishes in the union with Christ before he gets to talking about the body of Christ and its function with one another. So, too, with the church in Corinth, he wants us, he wants the church to stop and think about the union with Christ. We are in Christ. For honest, many times we tend to skip over that small little phrase, in Christ, as if they don't really matter that much. But those two words change everything. This is the very heart of the gospel. Though we've been separated from God because of sin, Jesus has made it possible for us to be reunited with our creator. That is good news. And so if you're here this morning and you know you are separated from God, you know it because you are purposely running from him. And for some reason you found yourself here this morning at a church gathering Makes no sense to you why you came, but for some reason you are here. Maybe you're here this morning for a reason. Maybe God, through his word, would be speaking to you. Asking you, are you one of my ch children? Turn to me in repentance and faith. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've grown up in church. You've been here for years. But you've never really thought about being separated from God. I mean, you've been in church, so aren't you then connected to God just by being in church? So you think, obviously, I'm united with Christ. Whether you're here because you, you're unsure of why you've come this morning, or you're here because it's what you've always done, the truth is this. Both you and I and everyone else in this room and in the world are born separated from God because of sin. 
Genesis chapter 3, God records for us that our parents, or grandparents, great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, chose to believe the lie of Satan rather than trust the word of God. And so they disobeyed God, and like them, we too disobey God. Paul says it this way in Romans 1. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. We've worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's each and every one of us. But God so loved the world that he gave up his son to redeem us, redeem you and I. That is the good news of the gospel. And so, friend, if you're here this morning without believing that good news, I would encourage you to turn today in repentance from your pursuit of sin or even your pursuit of self-worship and in faith bow your knee to Jesus. And God will, as he's promised in his word, unite you to himself. This is the good news for us who have turned in faith. Believers, brothers and sisters, along with Paul, let's relish in this union with Christ. Let's relish in the body, the church united in Christ. Those who are in Christ are inescapably joined to other members of his body. We can no more be separate no more separate ourselves from each other than an arm can decide if it does not want anything to do with the torso or legs, can just separate itself. To do so would diminish God's grace. To do so is to disembody his grace to us, and that's exactly Paul's point here. What the church in Rome and the church in Corinth needed was this reiteration by Paul of their union with Christ so they would take a deeper look into the grace of God. He also, as he's reminding them here in these first two uh, verses of this passage, 12 through 13, he's also revealing something deeper going on. He's diagnosing what's really going on in their hearts, this heart of quarreling or fighting back and forth about who's more important, which gifts are more important. He's diagnosing their pride. Now, that diagnosis of pride should not at all be surprising to us because it's native to our human condition. In fact, that's what Eve was tempted with in the garden. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. If we're honest with ourselves, each one of us are infected with pride. John Stott profoundly acknowledges that at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride then is the greatest enemy and humility, our greatest friend. Again, that's exactly Paul's point. Pride diminishes the grace of God, and it disfigures the body of Christ. So when we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, we diminish the gospel and those around us in Christ's body. We tear off the ear because it is not like us, Paul will soon say. We pluck out the eye because it's of no use to us. We cut off the foot because it wasn't doing anything useful, or, or so we think. You see, we disembody the grace of God by pride and arrogance. And yet, as Paul has already established, both in verses 1 through 3, and again now in 12 through 13, pride is eliminated when one recognizes that faith, the faith one has is a gift of God. It is something that the Spirit has worked within you. Paul's telling us here that the solution to, to a diminished grace is a deeper look into that grace. 
I love how Isaac Watts states this truth in that great hymn of our faith. He says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and I pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. You see, pride is brought to its knees at the sight of the Holy One hanging on the cross. And so, friends, the question we are left to answer from the evidence Paul is uncovering are, am I diminishing grace? Am I thinking of myself above the need of grace? Am I disfiguring the body of Christ? Do I think of myself as above the need for others? Taking a deeper look at grace should then lead us to true appreciation and delight for Secondly, what we see here in this passage is a distributed grace. Look once again at how Paul uses this metaphor starting in verse 14. The body does not consist of one member, but many. The foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong. No, shouldn't say that. That would not make it any less part of the body. The ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. He continues on and on as he's talking about these various body parts. No, they're still part of the body. One of the most interesting potential backgrounds to this metaphor that Paul is using here, as D.A. Carson explains, is the excavated Asclepion. Now, what's that? What's the healing temple within Corinth, which was dedicated to the first doctor demigod in Greek mythology, Asclepius. Within this temple, those in Corinth would see many large statues of heads, hands, and feet, arms and legs, eyes and ears, which, had, which would have represented the afflicted members that had been cured by this demigod, Asclepius. So, likely what Paul is doing here is against that background, he's saying the dismembered limbs displayed there in that temple as symbols of everything that Christians should not be. They should not be dead, divided, unloving, unloved. They should not be dismembered by pride or self-promotion. And so because of the Corinthians' need for unity, Paul's train of thought shifts here in verse 14 from declaring the body's existence in Christ to a connection to the spiritual implications of the unity within the body of Christ. For until we realize the important lesson of mutual dependence, we can, as a church, accomplish little, no matter how impressive our array of spiritual gifts are. And so Paul gives us two points here that are important for us to understand. First, Paul draws our attention to the fact that within the church, there are many members, just as there are in a human body. And not all have the same function. But isn't that precisely the splendor of the human body and the church? Not all our ears, not all our eyes, not all our feet. God so composes our physical bodies to allow us to move and breathe 
eat, walk, talk, run, smell. We can go on and on with the amazing creativeness of God displayed in the human body. And God says through his servant Paul, the church is just like that. An amazing creation. And so we see that there are many members, and yet secondly, we see that all the parts, all the members form one unit, one body. There's an inherent unity that it then exists in the body of Christ. But it's not a, a unit, it's but it's not a unity through uniformity. And we all look alike. We're all eyes or all ears. No, it's through the diversity. God is glorified in the distinct differences of his people. We are unique for his glory. So that should encourage us as a church to delight in the grace of diversity within our body. I'm certainly glad not everyone here looks like me, and I'm sure you are too. Let's be glad not everyone has the same gifts, the same vehicles, the same educational choices, the same background, the same whatever it is you might list. There's diversity, and that's grace to us. And though we are many members, we are one body. And as one body, writes John Stott, each member belongs to all the others. That is, we are dependent on one another. And the one anotherness of the Christian fellowship is enhanced by the diversity of our gifts. And see, God composes his body to individually function differently, but together flourish in the beauty of unity. And this flourishing happens by God giving gifts of grace to his church. I mean, isn't that so good of God to do? He doesn't work merely at the universal level. No, he works in the individual, and he gives grace to each person. And he is to be seen in that dis distribution of grace. And so when one of our members uses the grace given to them, to, to teach, to serve, to, to lead, to show mercy. That is to draw our attention to Jesus, for he is the head of the body. Whatever gifts you and I have been given, we are under obligation then to use them to serve the body. I mean, that's Paul's point when he sums up this teaching here in verses 20, verse 27 and following. He says, now, after talking about the metaphor of the body, those who are less honorable be bestowed greater honor. He says here in verse 27, now you are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ. You are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophet, third teachers, then miracles and gifts of healing. We've talked about that, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Then he lists off these questions. Are all apostles? Well, no, of course not. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all possess gifts of healing? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts or, or the greater, those that are building up the body of Christ. And his point here in listing all of those gifts is to show that not everyone is an ear. Not everyone is an eye. Not everyone is a, a foot. There are different parts of the body. And so church, body of Christ, are you an arm? 
Use it. Are you an eye? Use it. Are you a foot? Use it. Use the grace of God given to you in your gifts to build up his body. So in closing this morning, take a moment and look around you first, just a second. And that's not just a rhetorical thing to say, like, look around you. Look around. Look at the individual behind you, in front of you. And know this. God has so composed his body, his church, that you need that arm sitting in front of you. You need the eye sitting in the back row. You for sure need that leg that is bouncing your baby in the nursery right now. Others need the grace you have been given. So don't withhold that grace. As the human body is at disadvantage without a foot or an eye or a kidney, so the local church is harmed when the gifts are not being exercised within it. God's distributed grace is most gloriously displayed in his church when each member joyfully uses the grace given to them to build up others, the church. Again, that's what Paul says here. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. The body of Christ is so composed that when one member hurts, the rest of us hurt, just like our bodies. When one member is weak, the others will come around it and strengthen it. When one small finger hurts on our physical body, we, we tend to feel it all over. And that's not just a cute analogy that Paul uses here. He is saying this is to be the daily realization within the church. So brother and sister in Christ, are you using the grace given to you to build up the body of Christ? We need you. Oh, but I'm, I'm just an eye. Do you really need me? I'm just an arm. I'm just a, a pinky. What's that for? We need you. Are you delighting in the grace given to those around you? You need them. They're not indispensable. Don't diminish them because they're not like you. You need them. Don't disembody grace by not using your gifts. To disembody this grace is just as much of a crime as to disembody feet. So God, I pray through this text this morning, you have encouraged us. You've also cautioned us. You've cautioned us to not diminish the grace within the body and many members. That we would not, most importantly, we would not diminish the grace that you have given in your son, Jesus Christ. 